2023 will see the 60th anniversary of the first woman in space and the 40th anniversary of the first U.S. woman in space. Plus, we should find out who's scheduled to be the first woman to fly to the moon with the Artemis program. So with that in mind, we'd like to start talking about some pioneering women in spaceflight. And to begin with, Wally Funk. And to find out more about her, we're talking to journalist Sue Nelson, who wrote the wonderful book, Wally Funk's Race for Space. Please keep your thoughts and comments coming into us. It's great to hear from you. You can do this via our social media pages at Space and Things One on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook or via the contact form on our website. But right now, enjoy episode 128 of the Space and Things Podcast. Thing with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 128 of our podcast. There's a lot going on right now. <laughs> there is a lot oh, going yes. on, both in our personal lives and with what we're trying to do here. And it's all very exciting, or some of it's very exciting. So, uh, but what I did notice, Emily, is despite that, despite your internet being out all day yesterday, yes, uh, you still managed <laughs> to get an article up. Yes, I did put up an article on Medium about uh, <laughs> our favorite iconoclast of NASA, Rusty Schweikert, who uh, is somebody whose career I've been following, God, forever, and he's just an awesome guy. I've talked to him a few times during this whole crazy space odyssey that I've gone on. And he's really cool, but um, I really admire him because he's probably one of the most like, I don't give a I've ever met who had like a career as an astronaut, you know, the cliche marches to the beat of his own drummer. He really does. I mean, he really leads, I think from his heart more than his head sometimes, which I think is really cool in a lot of ways. So uh, I wanted to write an article about him because I just think his career in the 70s, he did so many things that just were not things you'd expect an astronaut to do. So I was like, man, I got to talk about this. This is really cool. Yeah. yeah. So I wrote a piece about it, and uh, I think it's a lot of fun. I love it, and I, I hope to keep expanding the the Space in the 70s series this year. I should probably write a book about it, but uh, more on that later. I, I kind of am. So yeah. Nice. Excellent. Yeah, but we'll 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 hear more about that at a later date, though. Yeah, uh, I I was personally very very impressed that you tried to write a, an article, or you have written an article about Rusty Swicart because let's be honest, it's the hardest name to spell in spaceflight. Uh, I think I've spelled it seven thousand different ways every time I try and attempt to to type it. But um, well done. I noticed that you got it spot on every time, uh, and why wouldn't you? Uh, whereas me, no, can't do it can't do it yeah he does have kind of a, a a different name sort of a hard name but no it was a lot of fun to write just because he's such a interesting topic and he's really had just a neat career other than space flight it will of course be in our show notes if you want to know more about what apollo 9 astronaut rusty swicart got up to in the 70s then check out emily's latest article anyway let's crack on with this week's show as we said in the intro this year is a big year for women in spaceflight not just when we look at the past but also when we start to look forward and as a result through this year we will highlight some of the pioneering women of spaceflight and this week we're focusing on wally funk mary wallace funk was born on february 1st 1939 in las vegas and she was the first female air safety investigator for the national transportation safety board she was the first female civilian flight instructor at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and the first female Federal Aviation Agency inspector. Certainly a pioneering pilot. But why are we talking about her on a space podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. Wally was a member of a group which has since been dubbed the Mercury 13. 13 women who took part in a privately funded program run by Dr. William Randolph Lovelace to test and screen women for spaceflight in the early 1960s. It's worth noting that this was not a NASA program and these women never even met as a whole group. And the Mercury 13 title was in fact only given to them by a Hollywood producer in 1995. 
when NASA first started to consider who would fly into space, they made a decision that all astronauts had to be graduates of military test piloting programs and have engineering degrees. And women were at the time barred from Air Force training schools, so no American women could meet these criteria. Dr. Lovelace helped to develop the medical test for NASA astronauts and afterwards became curious as to how the female body would react in space. So he privately funded the Woman in Space program in which he invited 25 women to come and take the physical tests. 19 women took the physical examinations at the Lovelace Clinic in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and 13 of those women passed. The youngest was Wally Funk, who was just 23 at the time. Three of those women, including Funk, then went to the second phase of testing, consisting of the isolation tank test and psychological evaluations, and Jerry Cobb also completed the third phase of testing at this time, which was the advanced aeromedical examinations using military equipment and jet aircraft. The group were all set to gather down in Pensacola, Florida, at the Naval School of Aviation Medicine to follow suit. Two of them even quit their jobs so that they could attend. But a few days later, before they were due to report, the women received telegrams canceling the testing. Without an official NASA request to run the test, the Navy would not allow the use of its facilities for an unofficial project. Away from this program, Funk continued to try to prove that she should fly in space, putting herself through that third round of testing privately. The results of the tests had been announced at the Second International Symposium on Submarine and Space Medicine in Stockholm, Sweden. That is a mouthful. On August the 18th, 1960, Jerry Cobb lobbied the government hard to try and resume testing, and she was aided by another of the 13, Janie Hart, who also wrote to President Kennedy and visited Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson. Not many people called Lyndon these days, are there? Anyway, in July 1962, (laughs) there was a public hearing before a special subcommittee of the House Committee on Science and Astronautics in which the idea of gender discrimination was discussed. This was two years before such actions were made illegal in the US by the Civil Rights Act. Famously, Jackie Cochran, who was an extremely famous female pilot who helped to fund these Lovelace tests, testified against women becoming astronauts. Two of the Mercury 7 astronauts, John Glenn and Scott Carpenter, also testified, with John Glenn saying, the fact that women are not in this field is a fact of our social order. It is worth noting that Glenn had become an astronaut despite not having an engineering degree, which was a requirement at the time. After the hearings, Liz Carpenter, who was executive assistant to Vice President Lyndon Johnson, drafted a letter to NASA Administrator James Webb questioning the requirements. But Johnson did not send the letter, instead writing across it, let's stop this now. And that was that. The story of the 13 ended up back in the media after the Soviets put the first woman, Valentina Tereshkova, in space on June 16, 1963. A Life article, a magazine article by Claire Booth Luce, published the names and photos of all 13 women, and the New York Times quoted Jerry Cobb as saying that it was a shame since we are eventually going to put a woman into space. We didn't just go ahead and do it first. It took until 1978 before NASA selected six female astronauts to join their ranks. And the first of those flew in 1983, which was Sally Ride. It took another 12 years for NASA to have a female pilot, and it wasn't until 1999 that a woman commanded a space shuttle mission for NASA, who was Eileen Collins, who we spoke to back on episode 58. Currently, NASA has 41 active astronauts, of which 16 are female. Wally Funk kept flying and instructing and dreaming of spaceflight and is one of the two of the 13 who are still alive. She applied three times to become a NASA astronaut but was turned down because she didn't have an engineering degree or a background as a test pilot. In 2012, she put money down to be one of the first people to fly in space via Virgin Galactic. She published her own memoir in July 2020 called Higher, Faster, Longer, My Life in Aviation and My Quest for Spaceflight with author Loretta Hall, and on July 1st, 2021, Blue Origin announced that Funk would fly on the new Shepard flight, the first new Shepard flight, along with founder Jeff Bezos. The suborbital flight took place on July 20th, 2021, and Funk became the oldest person to fly to space, ironically surpassing John Glenn's record of being 77. 
Her record was beat by William Shatner, but currently she is still the oldest female to have traveled to space. The Mercury 13 is also the title of a wonderful Netflix documentary, which we thoroughly recommend. But today we are going to talk to Sue Nelson, an award-winning radio producer, science journalist, and former BBC TV science and environment correspondent. She is also the co-host of Space Boffins, which is a monthly podcast which brings cutting-edge conversation and debate about the past, present, and future of space science. And it's one of my favourite podcasts, of which Emily has also appeared as a guest, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I have. Yes, I have. It's great. Yeah, absolutely. And in 2019, Sue published a book called Wally Funk's Race for Space. And that is why we wanted to talk to her. The story behind this book is amazing, as you are about to find out. Hello, Sue. Thank you so much for joining us this week. To start with, how did you end up writing a book about Wally Funk? Were the two of you connected before you started writing it, or did that come through your research? Well, it's a sort of crazy mixture of work connections in that I had actually met Wally over 25 years ago in 1996, I think, or 97, when I had been living in New York Um, For a year, I was freelancing for loads of British newspapers and radio broadcasters and what have you. And I'd come across in a newspaper literally two lines that mentioned the Mercury 13, these women who had taken astronaut tests but never got into space. And I literally, like a cartoon, sort of my jaw went, my eyes, I was like, (laughs) what, what, what? Because I'd been obsessed with space as a kid, and yet I'd never heard of them. And so I was a sort of woman on a mission, basically. And as a freelancer, you know, part of your job as a freelancer is to pitch for work. Mm-hmm. And so I immediately pitched to the, I was like, this is amazing. This is what, I, oh my God, this is unbelievable. Why have I not heard this? If I've not heard this and I'm interested in space, I bet no one else in the UK has heard of this. And fortunately, the people at the BBC felt the same. So that when they <laughs> read my suggestion in 1996 of a radio documentary called Right Stuff, Wrong Sex, they said, yes, yeah, we love this. We've not heard of this. And in fact, eventually, NPR took a, a version of that documentary too. Wow. So it, it also went out in the United States. And as a result of that, I had to track the Mercury 13 down like a sniffer dog. And, and you know, this is the mid-90s where I suspect my computer was probably a great big box <laughs> the size of a house with green writing on it and only green writing on it and there weren't such things as you know sort of digitized like newspapers where you can just now it's so easy you can just search for an article search for this search for that that just wasn't the case then mm. so it was all grunt work effectively in terms of I had to go to libraries and read things on microfiches <laughs> and call people the old-fashioned connection you don't text anybody you actually called people so um, I made tons of phone calls and eventually tracked down four of them I'd wanted Jerry Cobb but no one knew where she was and Jerry Cobb was the first woman of of that cohort to pass take the test proof of concept effectively Mm -hmm. um, and say, look, here we go. Here's one woman who could do it. And so the physician who organized the tests, Dr. Randy Lovelace, which I think you will appreciate being British. The Americans don't see how sniggery the name Randy actually Lovelace um, actually gave these women the same tests as the men and because Jerry was the proof of concept and the same test as the uh, Mercury 7 thought well is it a one-off like scientists do it's like well is it one-off or are others going to do this 
And sadly, she was in the Amazon because um, she was very religious. And in fact, Wally said to me that, you know, when she used to stay with Jerry Cobb quite a lot, and um, she said she was always praying. (laughs) So she she was very religious and she would often go missing. Well, not missing because she was obviously on on a mission and, and doing really important work. But from people back in the States, she'd gone missing, you know, for weeks, months, sometimes like a, a year. But I did get hold of Sarah Ratley, wow. Jerry Truehill, Irene Leverton, and Wally Funk. And as luck would have it, three of them would be in the same location in the same place at the States at a very specific time. And this was Dallas, Texas at a Women in Aviation conference. So I flew to the States, interviewed all three of them in the same city. And that's when I first met Wally. Um, Separately to the two women in Texas, um, I went to Jerry Truehill's home and I could sense a bit of tension right from the start because... Jerry actually said, when I said, oh, I'm going to interview Wally, she was like, hmm. and she <laughs> referred to her as overbearing or something. She can be a little overbearing or something. <laughs> and Jerry was lovely and open and gorgeous and witty and funny and had a hoarse voice. She was like Lucille Ball on steroids. Mm. She was amazing. Sarah was much more, and Sarah sadly died a few few years ago. She was much quieter and very considered and and and, and obviously incredibly smart. And and then when I met my when I met Mark Wally, he was giving a talk. When I told her I'd been to, <laughs> I'd been to meet Jerry and Sarah, she went, Oh, Jerry, she can be a little overbearing. <laughs> so it was obviously a clash <laughs> of personalities. And I think that says more than anything. What people don't realize about these women who were in the Mercury 13 is that they were total individual, almost mavericks, but 13 of them. They weren't a team. They weren't like the Mercury 7. They didn't do their tests together. They only did them in twos. Wally did hers on her own, Mm. you know, because it it just wasn't done. The tests were the same, but it wasn't done the same way. So these women were very strong-minded they had to be strong-minded to be doing to be pilots you know in that time in in the early 60s so met wally then and then i we'd kept in touch again without sort of email and mostly stuff. we wrote to each other wow so i have these lovely letters with wally that go back over 25 years and then in 2016 I'd worked as staff at the BBC as a science correspondent, and I'd then gone sort of freelance again and then set up my own production company. I've always been interested in stories that centre women, women's hidden Mm. histories, and I've made quite a few radio documentaries that focus on that. So not just that Mercury 13 one, right, stuff, wrong, sex. And I'd been trying like mad to get a documentary commissioned about the history of women in space because I just felt, you know, this is a story that needs to be told. And it literally took me three years. I'm very persistent, you know, Mm. of of renaming things and giving them different titles and hoping that they won't (laughs) notice that they've come in the year before under a different title. And that one was called um, Women with the Right Stuff. See, I like the words right stuff. And it was commissioned with Wally as the presenter. Now, I hadn't wow. suggested Wally as the presenter, and I was, to be honest, horrified when they, the commissioner said, I know who you want, and that was Sarah Crudders, who's a yeah, great yeah. space author and Yeah, we had her, we've had her on uh, the podcast yeah. before. Lovely. Yeah, she's great. I'd mm-hmm. suggested Sarah, and the, the commissioning editor said, no, Wally. And I said, why? He said, because every time you say her name, you smile. And I thought, yeah, sure. But I was thinking inside, yeah, sure, I smile. But, you know, I'm thinking it from with my producer hat on there. You know, I had my presenter hat on when I was doing Right Stuff, Wrong Sex. But when you're producing, you're thinking in terms of can the person interview? Yeah. Can they hold a conversation and ask the right questions? Will they ask questions that don't result in a yes or no answer? Quite basic stuff. But if you haven't done that before, it's challenging. Absolutely. So all I was thinking of was... She's never presented a radio program before. Have you met Wally? You know, she's a free range hen. 
you know, she's she's a wild <laughs> child in a way, although she's incredibly disciplined. You know, she's exuberant. She says what she thinks. It's off the cuff. She just suddenly runs off if she finds something really interesting. So I just thought, she's unproducible. So <laughs> there was quite a big pause when he suggested Wally. But that was like a reconnection of us face to face. And I went to NASA Houston in Texas and we did interviews at Houston with like Jessica Meir. Um, I think it was Jessica, yeah, that time. It all becomes a blur in a way. Yeah. <laughs> but it was with women who were, were doing things that were extraordinary. So it's flight directors, because in the early times of space travel, there were few, well, there were no women's flight directors, physicians as well who worked with the astronauts. And Wally and I just had a ball. And as a result, that program that we made, it won um, a New York Festival's International Radio. Oh, Award. nice. And as a result of that, it doing so well and people responded so well to it and it went on the BBC website. And so, again, more people got to know Wally's story again. We got to make another program called First Woman on the Moon because by then everyone was starting to talk about Artemis. Yeah. And who would be? Uh, and and I sort of realized here's an opportunity to tell that story of the return to the moon, but again, from a female-centric point of view. And obviously with the astronaut corps and, and with NASA's declarations, that meant there would be a first woman on the moon. So we then spent time in Florida. We were in Europe um, interviewing um, Samantha Cristoforetti, who became the first European commander of the female European commander of the International Space Station. That sort of led us. We were on a Eurostar, basically. Um, Wally was talking. We were talking about why is you know why haven't you written a book? I asked her, and she said, "Well, would you write it? Would you write my biography?" And there was a pause, and there was a pause while I thought of all the things we'd done together, all the things that wouldn't make a traditional biography, like the fact that. She drove down the motorway to an airfield to take me flying and scared the living daylights out of me because she was not using her hands to drive. She was using her left knee and she suddenly started searching for like a piece of paper in the back. So with her knee, one left knee on the, on the, on the oh wheel, <laughs> she was looking behind her and fiddling. And at that moment, I looked up and beyond the visor, I saw this medical note that said, in case of death, do not resuscitate. It's obviously oh And I actually thought, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And it was just things like that that I thought, well, if I write a conventional sort of biography about her, there were so many episodes. It was like an elderly Thelma and Louise, the two of us, going on all these trips. I just thought, A, I wouldn't want to write it. Yeah. B, you wouldn't get that stuff. You wouldn't get that stuff. Mm. And it does tell us about her. So I said no. Explained why, because her face was crestfallen when I said no. And then I said, this is what I want to do. I want to do it this way. But if I do that, you've got to understand that it, it will be from my point of view. And I think she's a very brave woman because she said yes. Yeah, that, that's an amazing story and, and the book is a real triumph and you're right you don't have to know someone's full history about what they do with their life in order to to understand the person do you no and no. I, I think that's a really good concept that you came up with by the way randy lovelace is a great name for an austin powers character <laughs> yes <laughs> that's it isn't it it's uh <laughs> i was just like oh i just kept tittering throughout it was just like oh i couldn't <laughs> Keep my face straight. No, it's ridiculous. It is Austin Powers. Yeah, it? it's just brilliant. Uh, so, so much so. So, obviously, you wrote this book from your point of view and you, this, your stories, mm. but I'm assuming you had to learn all about Wally's backstory as well. You probably oh, yeah, knew it at yeah. that point anyway. So Yeah, and that was the thing, you see, during, you know, those programs we made, which spanned several years, and it wasn't just the programs. I accompanied Wally to New Mexico, which was nothing to do with the radio program. <laughs> To basically to see Spaceport America mm -hmm. because Wally had bought a ticket to Virgin Galactic. And, um, you know, this was where 
we thought she was going to fly into space, you know, having been denied the conventional route uh, in the 60s. We thought, right, this is how she's going to go up. So I not only had all these recordings of our interactions and chats from when we were in Dallas, when we were in Florida and Cape Canaveral, when we were in Europe. She stayed at our house before because I wanted to make sure because she was in her late 70s then. I wanted to make sure she was rested and, you know, not. So, you know, she stayed with us and we recorded them. And it's really only when you're with somebody for a long period of time that you get beneath the surface. Mm -hmm. You get the true stuff. You get a grip of what they're like their strengths and their weaknesses. And mm-hmm. and I'm not just referring to Wally. It made me realize my strengths and weaknesses as well, in that I was often very impatient with her. I mean, it's quite funny, really. We did bicker. She was quite rude to me sometimes. <laughs> I was quite rude to her. But I sort of like that about the fact that she's honest mm. and truthful and there's no side to her. And I think that's very similar to how I behave and act. I'm not very good with people who who don't say what they mean. So, yeah, it, it was a good fit. So I had all these amazing recordings and often she was saying, gosh, I haven't I haven't spoken about this in 30 years or oh, I'd forgotten about that. And I'm glad I got those recordings, too, because obviously and naturally, the older you get, yeah, and I know this myself, and I'm you know over twenty over twenty years younger than Wally. I could be her daughter. Those memories do change. You don't remember in that clarity of detail. Facts sometimes become a little flexible. So I'm really glad I've got those. I see it as an important part of space history. The fact that I had those recordings, and I'd also because I'm anal. I'd still had my transcriptions of our interviews, full interview from 1996 or seven. And and obviously when you're making a radio program, only only a small bit of your interview goes into it. It's not like these lovely long form podcasts now. So I had this material to, to do it. And I thought, gosh, this is amazing. And, you know, I had, you know, interviews with obviously other members of the Mercury 30 that could inform and enhance the story. So it's a memoir, but it's an unconventional Thelma and Louise style memoir. And I'm just glad that people did respond to it because it was difficult to sell as a result, yeah. you know, to publishers, because publishers would come back and say, you know, I'd hear by the agent. They loved it. They loved the writing. They loved this chapter. But could you do it a bit more? Because marketing said they weren't sure where to place it because it's all ran by by marketing. Basically. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah. And if marketing are not sure, then you're in big trouble. So I was quite bloody minded to do it the way I did, but I don't regret it at all. And and I'm glad that Wally's done the more conventional way, which is, you know, what she originally wanted with Loretta Hall, which is brilliant. I, I think they're both amazing and I think that's great. And I think hopefully the combination of the two yeah. will give the round picture of what the conventional version and the sort of slightly madcap road trip, who are these women version and who the hell is Wally Funk? And my goodness. She's a whirlwind sort of side of it as well. Does Wally have a sense that she is an aviation pioneer? Is she is she was self-aware in that sense? Do you know what? In my opinion, I would say no. Perhaps now because she gets invited so, you know, to things because of that legacy. But I would say in terms of what she was doing, my, the impression I got was that she didn't really realize it and she often said to me she was just you know she just loved her job she loved flying she loved doing what what she did and I understand that because you don't think when you're doing something that oh I'm the first I'm that you just do it because oh I really want to do this and I'll do it yeah. and that's what Wally Wally is absolutely I I love flying and yes she became the first female civil flight trainer at Fort Sill 
military base in Oklahoma in when she was 20. Yeah. I mean, that's astonishing. And, you know, not to mention like the FAA um, safety inspector becoming the first woman to, to, to do that in the early 70s and then the National Transportation Safety Board where she was basically go to plane wrecks and debris and dead bodies and plane crashes. But because of all her knowledge of all engines and she would learn the ones that she didn't know, she would then put together why the why the flight had crashed and, and what it was doing. You know, she just loved the job. She would just go from job to job. And what's astonishing is that while she was doing that career, unlike the other members of the Mercury 13, she didn't let that I want to go into space dream lie. She never let go of that. And I totally understand that drive and that determination. And I also understand and relate to her with that sort of bloody mindedness in a way, in that if someone tells you, no, you can't do that, you know, that's not for you thing. I mean, you know, I, I very rarely take no for an answer. Yeah. If I think something, an idea I've got or something is good enough, I get low. Don't get me wrong. I'll get upset. And I go from tears to rage quite quickly. You know, I go from self-pity and then I'm like, <laughs> they, and then start effing and blinding. Wally would do that, but without any of the tears or the effing and blinding. You know, she's focused this is what she wants to do and she do it. And I think pretty much her whole life, she's done what she's wanted to do. And I think the role that she played in aviation history and the history of space flight just came with it. Yeah. Just came with all that drive mm. and that determination to do what she wanted to do. Yeah, absolutely. When she was at the Lovelace Clinic, when she was at taking the tests, was yeah. she optimistic that the results might sway people into thinking that women would go to space that decade? Well, that's interesting because, you know, I've read conflicting reports of people saying, oh, they were never promised they would go into space and it was just being this. But obviously from the four members of the Mercury 13 that I've met and spoken to, and this was over 25 years ago, all four of them, were no, you know, they just said matter of factly, you know, they were the the staff member, the, the people who took the tests, the people there. It was all spoken about and assumed that no, these are the tests, and if you pass these, you've got a chance of going into space. Wow. So you know, Wally thought the same, and in fact, if you look at and you know, I did a lot of this research for the for the book. It's amazing the number of articles you find from the sort of early 60s before these women took the tests and slightly after they took the tests, where it was reported, you know, they'd taken these tests, here are these women, they could go in, in with a chance of going into space. Yeah, I was actually just reading Jay Gallantine's book about George Lowe, and uh, he was facing loads of questions in Congress about the women in space at that time. There was, because of these tests and the, and the articles that were appearing about these tests, there were so many of them that in Congress they were saying, what's going on here? And in the end, you yeah. had that hearing. Well, also, Randy Lovelace released the results of Jerry Cobb's test results in a, in a scientific paper, in a yeah. journal, and they were discussed at a conference. And this is the funny thing is that people think, oh, it just was secret and it wasn't publicised in that. But actually, you know, some of the Mercury 13 were on Life magazine. Mm. It was there. It was in the public domain. It just didn't get through to completion in terms of society and, you know, attitudes at, at the time. Who were the, the heroes and villains at that time? Obviously, <laughs> Randy, Randy Lovelace was clearly trying to do his best to make, make hero, things happen. Hero, yeah. yeah. Interestingly, you've got someone like Jackie Cochran who yeah, who I becomes knew, a I villain. Knew this was leading. Well, you see, I actually, I must admit, I think she's a fascinating character. Yeah. And I haven't read any books on Jackie Cochran. If anybody listening has got some recommendations of a really good book on her, I would love to read it because the reason she interests me as a journalist is that she's a grey area. Yeah. Some people see her as a villain. And in fact, 
when I met Jerry Truehill and Sarah and Irene and Wally in, in the 90s, and when I mentioned the name Jackie Cochran, they, they all practically spat a <laughs> name out. They were very disappointed. They were really not happy and upset. I can tell you that was absolutely how they felt then mm. about it. They felt let down. But when you look into her background and all the things she did for women and the fact that her money went into subsidizing the program as well, she's not all bad. It is shades of grey. I would love to know more about her because that's drama. That's interesting. It, all interesting people are those who are complex, who have competing sides of themselves and personalities. The people who are just really good or really bad don't interest me. It's boring. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Right. So let's go back to the tests. How did Wally Funk get on in these tests? I mean, I mean obviously she passed with flying <laughs> colours, right? Well, yeah. The thing is, I was told that either all the test results of the women was either you know, lost or destroyed or, or not kept because it just wasn't like most things, you know, go in your attic, you find all these papers. It it wasn't considered significant to, to keep. So I don't think you can actually totally say who did best right. in this unless it's from personal testimony from the women themselves and they were told by someone else that you did the best. Obviously, the fact that the 13 women passed all those tests shows that they had reached an extraordinary level mm -hmm. of physical fitness to actually be considered astronauts. Because if you've seen, I'm sure you have, you know, read the right stuff by um, Tom Wolfe, which is obviously why I kept putting right stuff in my titles. Yeah. And um, or the film, you know that they, they were not easy. They were not easy at all. And in fact, the ratio of women that passed was much higher than the ratio of men that passed the test, which I think I think is quite interesting. The one thing we definitely know for sure, and I'm speaking, I say, as a journalist here, is that Wally definitely aced the isolation tank okay. test, which is an important one because, let's face it, if you're in space, being in isolation, which seems, you know, to most people, it's like, well, of course I can do that, but... You put people in a, have you, you know, I'm sure you have. Those mercury capsules are tiny. Yeah, I don't fit. Yeah, <laughs> no, you wouldn't. And they are claustrophobic. They are really small and they are so thin. I just think of it as like a metal shuttlecock because oh, yeah. they're shaped like one, but they it just feels as flimsy or just looks as flimsy. So if you pass those tests, that's incredible. To get that isolation tank, which has felled many a test subject because people apparently can have hallucinations. Some people really panic and have panic attacks. And what's to me even more amazing that Wally aced this test with, I think it was 10 hours and 35 minutes that she managed to stay in this isolation wow. tank where your temperature of the water is the same as your skin, so you can't feel anything. The air is the same temperature. She said she felt it's like as near to space as can be because you just, you're floating, but you can't feel anything. She, on the ground, is the complete opposite of that. She's like a dervish. She whirls around. She can't shut up. And I, I mean that in a nice way. Yeah. Because people would say that about me. She's social. She likes company. She likes talking to people. Her brain goes buzz, 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 buzz. It's fizz, fizz, fizz. She wants to know things. She wants to do questions. So the thought of Wally in an isolation tank, I was just like, how on earth did she manage that? <laughs> but then when she took me flying, I saw a different side of her. On the way to that airfield where... I thought I was going to die because of her driving and she was talking a mile a minute and her left knee was going and she was looking at things. When we were up in the air, it was like a different person. She was so calm, so cool, so reassuring. Even the tone of her voice mellowed and softened and went slower. And I thought, oh my goodness, I can understand why so many women have come to you to be taught to fly as well as 
you know, men and women, but loads of women. She's taught loads of pilots at, um, in India, women to oh, wow. fly, for instance. And I could understand why, because you just felt, oh, I'm safe. Yeah. I'm safe with this woman. Whereas that was the complete opposite of how I felt with her on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> One of our patrons, Ed, has asked, what's the story behind the Wally stick? Yeah, I actually saw the Wally stick in action when we went flying. It basically looks like a drumstick. I think she devised her own stick that could be used for a number of things. So she not only sort of uses it to check the oil, I think she taps it on certain parts of the plane and she can gauge, because obviously she just knows her plane, you know, the Cessna by the back of her hand. She could gauge either how full the engine was and get an idea of this just from using the stick. So I think that stick derived from just her own experience of knowing um, from the sound of a plane and tapping it on a plane so she uses it for that, et cetera. I've seen doctors do that with like yeah. people's ribs <laughs> yeah. and they can tell tell what's going on in someone's lungs mm, by tapping their yeah. ribs. Yeah, they just know. Yeah, they just know. In Obviously, in 2021, Wally made her first space flight. And we had a question from uh, Dakota Wachter uh, who says, as someone whose entire dream was to see our home from above, did she ever talk about that achieving that moment? And did she have any thoughts on that overview effect? No, not not from when I've spoken to her. Um, I spoke to her obviously shortly after she'd gone up and she was tremendously excited. The overwhelming expression, shall we say, was very similar to what you saw when, you know, she did her amazing scene stealing press conference with Bezos and every everyone. Why wasn't I up there long enough? Why couldn't I do the, you know, I went it really was a sort yeah. of of she was excited. And delighted, but also she was just, I want to go back. I want to go back. I, I want to go back. It wasn't enough. No, it wasn't enough. And you can understand that. I mean, I really admire Bezos for making that dream come true for her because, I mean, Virgin Galactic, to be fair, have treated Wally so well. I saw firsthand how they treated her and they were very close with her, very kind to her. And, you know, very excited for her to go up with them. But, you know, when it came down to it, she got offered a, a free flight. And if she had, if she had said, no, I've got my ticket with Virgin Galactic, who knows? Yeah. She might still not have, well, she wouldn't have gone up yet. It was the right decision and, and good on Bezos for doing that because I know it was a bit of two men with their boy toys you know, squaring up against each other about who went up first. But I thought it was very interesting that when I spoke to one of Wally's friends, close friends, that it was so secretive. I didn't know she was going up. Only her, literally, I think one of her close friends wow. knew. So when I spoke to people, they were like, no, I didn't know either. And Virgin Galactic had no idea because their press officer rang me on the on the day it was announced went did you know and i was like no <laughs> no i didn't i didn't um is that when bezos apparently went to her you know her uh, house they were really impressed with him because they said it was so obvious it wasn't all about him he was genuinely interested in the mercury 13 he was genuinely interested in wally it wasn't the big ego. He mm. wanted to know about her, not the other way around. He wanted to know how to help her. So my opinion of Bezos has changed, actually, on hearing that, because I'm I'm just thought, you know, that's that's lovely. You made a woman's dream come true. And a dream that both of us, you know, I spoke to Wally on the phone during the pandemic and during lockdowns in the UK. And it's the first time I've ever heard her unsure. Oh, wow. That she wouldn't, might not go up. You know, she couldn't fly for a large period of time. There was nothing happening and everything, you know, it meant delays at Virgin Galactic. And I remember coming off the phone to her once and saying to my husband, Richard, oh my goodness. 
I don't, I'm not sure. Oh my goodness. I'm not. Oh my goodness. What happens? Oh my goodness. What happens if she doesn't go out? I was really upset. So, yeah. So I'm, I wasn't the only one who burst into tears when she went. Up. Absolutely. It was an emotional day, wasn't it? I mean, I don't know oh, her. Yeah. But I've, I've read the book, I've, I've, I've watched the documentary, but but I mean, I found the whole thing so overwhelming just yeah. watching watching that happen and, I, and play out. And I was so glad as well that I'd written the book, I'd written it my way, I'd put all these crazy adventures and things in because people then got felt this connection with her. Yeah, absolutely. I was also glad I actually took a huge... <laughs> reduction in shall we say in payment for the book so that the money could go towards bringing wally over to the uk because i wanted people in the uk to hear it firsthand to mm. hear her to meet her and she was such a huge hit when she came here she was treated like a rock star you know within the space fan community you know she was on bbc one and or you know, you name it, the Guardian, even the Sun. You know, it, it was just crazy. She was in every paper, podcast, TV programs, and I felt, you know, if I died there and then, I felt my job is done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because people know know what she's like, and so consequently, because she was such a hit, and people love to hear her story over here. When she then went up, although there were a lot of people in the media who who were not, you know, can you believe it, are not that interested in space as, as we are, <laughs> you know, there were some people going, hey, who's she? There was this community on Twitter of it going, it's Wally Funk, yeah. And then I got all these messages saying, I get it, I get it, I get why, you know, why you're obsessed. I get it, I get it, I get it. So it was... It was wonderful, it, and it was not just a UK and a US thing. Somehow it captured the world and, and shed a spotlight on, you know, a largely forgotten bit of history that's crucially important that, you know, women have always been involved in spaceflight. You know, like Hidden Figures has shown, there were engineers, there were mathematicians, they were trying also to be in that very public role as an astronaut, our history of spaceflight is still being written, really. You know, it's still incomplete. Mm. And the more we hear about that diversity of stories relating to spaceflight, I think the more people realise that it's not a niche sport or activity in a way. It's something that's very primal to human beings and important to, you know, we've always, as a species, we have a sense of adventure. If there's a mountain there, we try to climb it. If there's a river there, we try to swim it. You know, it, it's just the way we are. Now, it's just the same. We look up in the night sky, there's a moon there, we need to go there. There are stars and planets out there, we need to find out more. You can't deny that this is who we are. This is why we like space. It's not because we're NASA nerds or ESA yeah. nerds, although obviously, you know, yeah. It's because we are representing that sort of innate curiosity of mankind or Susan's naughty Susan, humankind. <laughs> <laughs> well, that feels like a really good place to end this. Uh, thank you very much for, for for sharing this with us, sharing these stories with us. We're going to talk again in a, in, a, in a month's time. We've got other things we need to talk about with you, Absolutely. which I'm looking forward to. Uh, but thank you very much for, for chatting to us about Wally. And we'll, we'll be pushing your book out to more of our listeners, hopefully, <laughs> who we may not have heard of it yet or read it yet. Brilliant. Thank you. I saw darkness. I thought I was going to see the world, but we weren't quite high enough. And I felt great. I was just laying down and I was going into space. And I want to thank you, sweetheart, because you made it possible for me. Well, that's just gone straight in as one of my favorite interviews of all time. Yes, I think it went beautifully. I, I did listen to the interview. Unfortunately, my internet was down yesterday. 
So uh, I was dealing with that, so I couldn't be part of the interview. But I did listen to it, and actually, it made me cry like a few times. I was <laughs> very emotional during it. It's hard to believe in 2023 that, you know, women had to go through all of this stuff to just really just go to space, you know, which to me seems like sort of a right, you know, like, why can't we just go to space? You know, it's 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 a job. Why can't we do that? There's nothing that should hold us back from it. But back then, you know, it, it was something that, you know, due to discrimination, along with a lot of things, we were held back in the United States from doing it. I think the part of the interview that made the impact on me the most was when uh, Sue was talking about flying with Wally and how, you know, Wally on the ground is this very exuberant, you know, nonstop person, doesn't stop talking, you know, very energetic. And when she gets in the air, she's very calm. Yeah. She transforms. And Sue also brought up the fact that, you know, this is why a lot of women pilots have learned to fly from her. Because she's very calm. She's not going to yell or scream at you. She's not going to be aggressive. That made a big impression on me. And that really speaks to what a great instructor and what a great pilot she is. Absolutely. Absolutely. I loved this interview. I thought Sue, obviously, she's a pro. She told told that story so well about how it all came together. And, and the book is incredible. It's such an interesting book because it's not your standard biography which i think is why it's so amazing um and I, I do recommend it to absolutely everyone for me when when sue started talking about wally funk getting her flight and how she kept it secret for everyone and 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 the emotion of that day when when everyone saw wally fly when you just hear it you can't see that actually sue was was getting emotional telling that story she you don't necessarily hear it but you could see it it was a wonderful moment for me to witness someone who's clearly just witnessed their friend and and someone who they they look up to as this pioneer who should have got their shot so much earlier that was clearly an emotional emotional time there was one question but we didn't have time to ask which I thought I would ask you Emily and that was obviously that a US woman didn't fly in space until 1983 nor command a mission until 1999 what do you feel happened in the 30 or so years that made people understand that women could and would succeed in spaceflight? I mean, I know you weren't around for all those days, but but what do you think actually happened? Do you think it's a societal change or do you think that something happened within the spaceflight world that enabled that to happen? In the 60s and early 70s, there was no Blue Origin. There was no SpaceX. There was no private spaceflight company that if there had been, you know, if, if we'd been so forward facing, I think at that time, I think possibly a woman would have gone to space earlier because I don't I think that, you know, if there hadn't been some kind of requirement like, well, a woman has to have a Ph.D. or a woman has to have these or someone has to have these educational requirements. I think, you know, maybe people would have turned around like, OK, well, anybody can do this. I think it would have maybe accelerated the thinking a little bit, but. Mm. You know, in the 70s and stuff, NASA really held the cards as far as spaceflight. They were the only group out there doing human spaceflight in the United States. So I know a little bit about this, but in the 70s, I know people like George Abbey and John Young actually wanted um, for the first space shuttle class. They, they wanted to start bringing a more diverse astronaut corps because they were aware that okay this is all white guys and also nichelle nichols who was lieutenant uhura on star trek was brought on board to basically kickstart that initiative because nasa was actually having trouble getting people to apply because i think the word really had not gotten out that okay you know we're taking women this time we're taking african americans we're taking asian americans so they got someone like Lieutenant Uhura aboard, and she deserves a lot of credit because she was basically like, look, this has to be real. I'm not going to go out and lie to these people and say, OK, you can be part of this. And then they don't get selected. Mm. So I'm going to go out there and court these engineers and scientists. And you guys better actually put your money where your mouth is or I'm going to be your worst nightmare. And NASA listened to her because of people like her and people like George Abbey. They actually selected in 1978, you know, women to the astronaut class and also African-Americans and also um, one Asian-American as well. I don't know if it was a societal change because, you know, if you read, <laughs> I love Mike Mullane, but if you read Writing Rockets, when he was, 
became an astronaut, he was like, crap, I got to work with women because he was an Air Force guy and he'd never worked with women before because the Air Force was still very much male dominating Mm -hmm. at the time. I mean, I'm sure there were women in it, but not many. So I don't know if society really changed much, but I think at NASA, you know, they became aware in the early 70s that they had they had a ways to go, that they weren't inclusive at all, that it really was kind of a mess. And who are the most visible people at NASA? Astronauts, of course. So I think they became aware that, you know, we need to have our most forward facing people resemble the United States more. I think they really sort of leaned into it by that point. And to their credit, they've been leaning into it. I think the last astronaut class they selected was half women or, you know, and and that's awesome. And they've always picked people also who are very qualified, who really earn their spot because of course there's going to be people who are like well i bet that person didn't earn it they just got in there because they looked a certain you know you're gonna have yeah, people who's picking yeah they're gonna you're gonna have people who say crap like mm. that if you look at these people's credentials that's obviously not true i mean i couldn't make it in there. <laughs> i couldn't they're, they're the best of the best i couldn't make it in there. Yeah. i don't know i don't think it was a societal change as much as there was just a group of people who are like okay we're gonna push this change forward and try to make it more inclusive, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Well, uh, yeah, I love this interview. Uh, I hope I hope our listeners did as well. As always, you can hear the full unedited interview on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash space and things, and full details on Sue's book, The Space Boffins Podcast, and her social media pages can be found in the show notes on spaceandthingspodcast.com. Or just have a look under this episode in your podcast provider. Sue will be back on our podcast along with her Space Boffin co-host in March. And details of that will also be revealed on our Patreon page. I've been waiting a long time (laughs) to finally get it up there. And I've done a lot of astronaut training through the world, Russia, America, and I could always beat the guys on what they were doing because I was always stronger and I've always done everything on my own. We had a great time. It was it was wonderful. I want to go again fast. So, Emily, what has caught your eye in the world of spaceflight since we recorded last week? Actually, it's a couple things. The first thing is tomorrow it looks... I think it's tomorrow. Uh, we're recording this section on a Wednesday, so this is supposed to take place i think tomorrow february the 9th which is when the show comes out so we're probably not going to be able to talk about this till the next week's episode but i think they're doing the static firing of the starship tomorrow in i think Uh, in boca chica all 33 engines so that's gonna be really cool and i'm really excited i hope it goes well it would be really neat to see this go off this year i know elon musk uh has said he would like it to go off in March, which is next month, which is not very far away. Because I'm like, when it first was announced, I was like, oh, right. Oh, March. That's not. And then I was like, whoa, that's like a month away. That's <laughs> I'm really nervous and excited to see how it goes. And I wish them a lot of success. If it is a success, that's going to be a big deal. Yeah, that one's going to be cool. Yeah, I'm really 33 engines, man. That's insane. Yeah. I mean, that's that to me is nuts. It's a uh, I don't want to mention another rocket that had less than that many engines because that rocket was not very successful so i do not want to mention that rocket i don't want to doom anything i think you know which one i'm talking about yeah it's called the m1 i'll say it okay. it's called the n1 <laughs> <laughs> yeah you've you've watched those videos on youtube where they show what those launches looked like it, it didn't end up good so let's hope these uh these end up a little better than those another thing i noticed this week we have had in Space Hipsters, the, that's the group that I founded on uh, Facebook. If you are new to this podcast, you're not aware of it. We've had a lot of weird hoaxers and, and you know, people who um, are anti-moon landing. You know, they don't believe it happened and stuff. And these people are mean as hell. But yesterday we were up to our necks in that stuff. And um, oh, wow, it was just crazy to me. And I think it's funny, though, because on one hand, there are like... You know, they think the moon landings are fake, right? And they're very anti-science. But at the same time, they're inundating our group. So it's like, so are you fans or what? Like, yeah, you know, <laughs> so you're a fan, right? If you're if you're trying to, like, join the group and make comments, you're a fan to me. 
So I just wanted to say to them um, today, thanks for giving us the views, man. Like, I really thank yeah. you. Thanks a lot. I'll take the views any way I can get them. Seriously, though, it's it's amazing to me how hateful these people are and how nasty they are. And it makes me feel sad. You know, I think we really need a longer show for this topic, but I just think the world is just very lacking in any type of compassion right now or any type of understanding. So anyway, what about you, Dave? Has anything caught your eye this week? Yeah, so uh, I'll keep this brief. The, the Flight Test Historical Foundation posted something very cool this week. Uh, it says, I'll, I'll just read it out. A huge discovery has been made in an unmarked box in the archives. We rediscovered Neil Armstrong's XMC2 pressure suit used while he tested the X-15 at Edwards Air Force Base. Each suit was custom made for the pilots by the David Clark Company and it represented a major advancement in pressure suit technology and was a prototype for those used later by Mercury and Gemini astronauts. The suit had a ventilation layer for cooling as well as an outer heat resistant layer. These advances offered a more comfortable and maneuverable suit and protected the pilot in the event of cabin pressure failure or emergency ejection from the X-15 at extreme altitudes. And there's some photos as well. So I'm going to post a link to this because I thought this was very cool. Neil Armstrong's X-15 suit has been found in a box. Yeah, just a box. It. Yeah, I read that yesterday and I was like, they just found it in a box. Like, that's like going in your, yeah. that's like gold. I mean, that is like going in your <laughs> attic and just being like finding the mother load. That is awesome. Yeah, that is yeah. really a re- cool story. I know we've said it a few times. We really need to do an X-15 episode, don't we? Yes. Yeah, we need to do an X-15 episode. We need to talk to somebody who's an X-15 expert. Like, I've read a lot about the X-15, and I love it. I'm not the person to talk to. We'll just put it that way. There are other people who are definitely uh, bigger experts out there than I could, such as uh, Michelle Evans and Dennis Jenkins, I think. Amazing. Let's do that. Let's do that. Yeah. Right. And from every window, we have a really spectacular view of the Earth, as well as the... Uh, what surprised me, the real, real blackness of space. I don't think I've ever seen black as it is out here. Okay, that's it for this week. Thanks for joining us once again. We hope you enjoyed the show. A big thanks once again to our Patreon subscribers. If you haven't done so already, please consider joining us by heading to patreon.com forward slash space and things. Please do consider doing that if you're able. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you mean. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.